Workplace Wellbeing with Vincent Wall. Brought to you by Leia Healthcare. Download the full Workplace Wellbeing Index now on leiahealthcare.ie. Hello and welcome to Workplace Wellbeing with Vincent Wall. We're exploring new ways of work, culture and inclusion in the workplace with a range of expert interviewees. This podcast will focus on mental health fault lines in the workplace. Now coming up, how the law protects employers and employees when it comes to mental health at work and which issues do those in human resources face when it comes to dealing with the mental health of staff. But first, Sir Kerry Cooper is Professor of Organisational Psychology and Health at the University of Manchester Business School. He's also written many books in this sphere, over 250 I believe, including Wellbeing at Work in 2019. Kerry, you're very welcome to the programme. Yeah, great to be here, Vincent. First of all, Kerry, you've been writing and teaching on this subject for, for many decades now. So um, you've, been, you've been tracking this whole issue of, of uh, well-being and particularly mental health in the workplace. Is this something that has become more of an issue long before COVID? Oh, yeah, long before COVID. I, I think really it's been an issue for quite a long time. But let's go back to the recession of 2008 to 2015. That, I think, really stimulated a kind of mental health as an issue in the workplace, big time. And, you know, people, a lot of people lost their job. That was a finan- world financial crisis. Uh, lots of people lost their job. Job insecurity was high. Uh, you know, it was very difficult to not only to get a job, but people were starting to work longer hours to show commitment uh, with something I call presenteeism. I, I defined that term in the 1980s when we had the, the recession of the 1980s. But it was that recession, I think, that turned everything around in the sense that employers began to say, hey, this is an important issue. The mental well-being of our people is important. How we manage the stress on them, how we create the right kind of working environment so we don't lose so many people, that, you know, talent retention being a big issue from an HR perspective. So I think it started then. So we had 2008 to 2015 um, with a, a, a much more of a focus on the mental well-being of people. But the driver there, by the way, wasn't just that this is, you know, we from an employer's perspective, wasn't just that we think this is, you know, this is something we should do from a PR perspective outside to show we're interested in employees. For them, it was bottom line. How do we retain? How do we attract the next generation of people, given the recession meant that quite a lot of people lost their job? How do we keep the, because we're now mean and lean, how do we keep the people we've got? How do we attract the good people for the future? Then we went through that. And then we had the um, uh, an event in 2016, a horrendous event called Brexit. Um, that, in the UK terms, that divided the country dramatically. But in European terms, it was also unsettling for Europe that a major country should leave the EU. Uh, and that created a lot of instability, insecurity. You know, what's, what's, how is this going to affect the European economy? Um, again, reinforcing the insecurity that we had from the recession. Uh, well, I, I would call 2008 to 2015 a depression rather than a recession. Mm. But anyway, and, and then now, what, what ends up happening now we have a cost of living crisis. We have an energy crisis, the war in Ukraine. We have all of this stuff hitting people at the same time. And in life, you know, Vincent, the thing that causes any human being to get ill from, you know, from stress, anxiety, or depression, the two things are lack of control over events and uncertainty. 
And since 2008, we've had nothing but mm. uncertainty and people don't feel they can control it. And that is the thing. That's the driver. So from an organizational point of view, they have to figure ways of creating the right kind of culture where, where people feel valued, trusted, and reasonably secure. I'm not saying 100% secure because you can't do that in the marketplace that we're in today. But I think that's the kind of background to it. And now, like in Ireland and almost every EU country, particularly the big countries uh, in the EU, uh, not the big countries, but all the countries in the EU, maybe some not, not for some Eastern European countries, they have other issues as well. Um, the leading cause of sickness absence is what we call a common mental disorder, stress, anxiety, and depression. In the UK, it's 57%. It is huge. It is the biggest problem uh, in terms of absenteeism. And then you have, on top of that, presenteeism, people turning up to work ill because they're frightened of having um, a high sickness absence rate on their HR record. So they turn up to work even when they're ill, when they're feeling low. They're contributing no added value, incidentally, but they're doing that. And presenteeism is the big hidden cost to businesses. Yeah, you referenced that very high percentage of people who are who are uh, presenting with, with with some sort of mental health or, or or stress issues. I mean, the same here as as you wouldn't be surprised, uh, Kerry. Three quarters of all employee referrals to Leia Healthcare's occupational health service last year w- w- were mental health related. Um, y- you mentioned there that that companies have become much more cognizant of this and are trying to do things um, out of self interest to some degree be, to to retain and and recruit staff, but. Is it that they, you know, in terms of up to now, what they have done largely has been almost um, shallow responses in terms of putting on health and wellness courses or or giving counselling to people, which kind of puts the onus back on the employee itself rather than looking at the organisational structures and the way employers and and managers and, and employees interact within a company? No, you're absolutely right. I'll tell you what's happened. There's a kind of a, a history to this. And the evolution is this. Companies first started to get into well-being and thought that, you know, ping pong tables and sushi at your desk and mindfulness at lunch was the answer to this. In well-being days where you had these smoothies and massages and the rest of it. So when they first started, many companies and organizations in the public sector as well, when they first started, they had well-being champions. They had mental health first aid, uh, mindfulness at lunch. And that's the way they started. And they realized that wasn't good enough. And that wasn't even denting the sickness absence rates, the presenteeism rates, uh, the labor turnover rates. In other words, people leaving a bad, you know, like they say, the old euphemism is you don't leave a, leave a job, you leave a boss. And mm. they, then, they then began to think this more strategically. So five years ago, uh, a number of chief medical officers and HR directors came to me of major global companies to Manchester Business School where I work and said, Kerry, would you get an organ would you create a form for health and well-being at work for for companies so we can talk to each other, share, and do something more strategic? Because these, you know, mindfulness days are not helping us. So uh, I said, sure. And now I have we, we've been doing this for five years. And these are very senior people, HR directors, chief medical officers, director of health and well-being at work, uh, and um, of companies like Rolls-Royce. BT, BP, et cetera, uh, Microsoft, and so on. And we meet on a regular basis. We have no funding other than minor funding to get a PhD student to help run it. But we meet on a very regular basis to look at these issues strategically. 
And these are 44 global employers. And so they're now concerned about what does good look like? You know, what is, when I say strategic well-being, what the hell do I mean? So here's what I mean. I mean, number one, you get somebody on the board of the company or the public sector body or even the third sector, and that person is responsible for employee health and well-being. I mean, that person may have other jobs too as a, a non-executive director, but you need somebody at the board level because in Europe, where we were worried about um, gender pay gap, how did we deal with that? We made it a board issue in Europe, and now boards have to report the, the gender pay gap between their male and female employees. That has meant that that gap has lessened because the board are held accountable for it. So we need somebody there, then we need somebody to operationalize it. I know this sounds very structural, but it, unless you take it seriously and you get the senior people to take it seriously, it'll never change. Mm. Then you need a director of health and well-being, a report to the HR director or the chief medical officer who can do things about it. And then you need easily, every organization should have this. Many do now, by the way, what I call metrics, you know, what does good look like? So if you are a good well-being company or public sector body, uh, you should have higher jobs, job satisfaction rates as perceived by your employees. You should have less labor turnover, people not leaving the job. You should have less stress-related sickness absence, and a lot of companies are measuring it. You should have less presenteeism. In other words, you have to do the metrics. You have to measure What's going on in your organization? And by the way, of this 44 companies and organizations, some are public sector bodies uh, like the NHS executive in, in the UK and the BBC and so on, they're all in it. And they now are getting this. And that, that's what they need. They have the metrics to decide to let the board know that things aren't going so well or that they are going well. And, and once you get that, it becomes more strategic. Then the issues become... When you, when you do employee voice, you ask employees how they perceive your organization, you know, you would at News Talk, you might say that you'd get everybody to say, how, how do you think about, what do you think about the hours you work, the way you're managed, uh, all of that, your line manager, uh, the communications within your organization, um, the uh, emails uh, culture, do people email you out of office hours regularly? All that kind of stuff. You collect all that data, and on the basis of that, you decide what you're going to do. The big issue, by the way, Vincent, the number one issue in my view, if there was one thing I would do, it's all about the line manager from shop floor to top floor. Mm. Do we have an emotionally intelligent, socially skilled line manager who recognizes when you have unmanageable workloads, unrealistic deadlines, and makes you feel valued and trusted? If we had that, in every organization, uh, mental health would, uh, mental ill health would not be the problem it is today. As you know better than most, uh, Kerry, we don't have that a lot of the time, understandably for all sorts of uh, educational and historical reasons that the line manager may be a specialist or may be in the position they're in because of they've been so long in the company that they've had to be promoted in some way. So in that scenario, how do you change things? Do you train them? Are some of them gone beyond training? And do you just have to give it time to replace them over time? That's a really good point, Vincent. Okay, here's my own view of, of, of doing lots of research on tens of thousands of people over the years. 
I think the line managers is a critical issue. Think about it, what we normally do in workplaces. We recruit and, and promote people to management roles based on their technical skills, not their people skills. Yeah. So you're, you're a great, uh, you know, you're really a, a great presenter in, in radio, fantastic. But to get ahead and make more money, you have to become a producer. And then a producer, you have to take another uh, leadership role in the pyramidal system that you operate in. You know News Talk pretty well, states. Gary. <laughs> Sorry? You know News Talk pretty well. <laughs> I, well I, I know the media quite well. And honestly, but it's all organizations. Yeah. To get ahead, you're a great teacher in a classroom, right? But to get more money, what do you have to be? You have to be a deputy head. And then a head teacher, right? Yeah. Now, you may be great at teaching kids, but you may be lousy at managing people. But to get ahead, so we promote people and recruit them based on their technical skills, not their people skills. So what we have to do about that as an issue is every organization, and a number, one, a number of them from a national forum for health and well-being at work are doing this, and that is to do audits of all your managers, all the way from shop floor to top floor, all the managers you've got. By the way, HR knows this. They know where the bodies lie. They know that those those three over there are pretty crap managers, excuse me, but not very good managers. You know, they shouldn't really be managing people. Um, those over there are really quite good. You know, they have the natural skills. So if I was looking at, I mean, I'm just giving you a rough idea. But my own view would be of the 40-40-20. In other words, in most organizations, 40% of your managers are have really good people skills naturally, not because you've trained them or not because you selected them based on that. They were selected on their technical skills, but their people skills are pretty damn good. So there's 40%. 40% have good technical skills, great, are trainable on their people skills. They don't have good, particularly good people skills. They need training and you train them. But 20% should never be put anywhere near human beings. They're technically very good, but they just don't have the natural people skills or are untrainable. And unless we get that reality right, and I think more and more organizations now are saying the role of the line manager is a part of this strategy. We have to do something about that for the future. Because people are feeling more insecure because of all the things I mentioned earlier. We're going into a recession. People are very insecure during a recession. Uh, they, need to, they need somebody who recognizes when they're showing symptoms of stress, uh, when they have unmanageable workloads, recognizes that, um, unmanage, um, unrealistic deadlines, uh, has problems at home because there are people who are very socially sensitive and talk to their employees and listen to their employees. So we need a different kind of manager than we've had in the past in the in 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 Europe or the world. I mean it's not just Europe. You, you uh, so uh, that is a part of a strategy. Uh, hours of work is a part of a strategy. The four day working week may be another part of the strategy. Uh, you know, you, you you find out for your employees how they perceive your organization by doing well being audits and you develop the strategy and ensure that the board are aware of it and the aware of facts like labor turnover is massively increased. People are leaving our organization. Why? Why are they leaving? You also argue that the individual employee 
himself or herself also has responsibility to monitor their own well-being and, and, and to put their hand up if, if, if they feel it's deteriorating for whatever reason. Absolutely. You know, it's a two-way, I mean, the employer is trying to create the right kind of organization to retain people, get the most out of them, make sure they don't have high stress-related sickness absence. Okay, that's the organization's responsibility, but the individual's responsibility too. And that responsibility is to uh, have good communications with their line manager and talk to them about issues that are troubling them, uh, taking control of, of their job or aspects of their job and making sure. So, for example, let's take flexible working, you, what everybody's calling hybrid working, mm. all right? Flexible working. So you're the kind of person that wants to work flexibly, but your employer says to you, I, I don't mind you working a day a week at home, but I want you in four days a week. And it doesn't, it doesn't work with your family, given you, you live outside Dublin an hour away and walk town. You've got, you, you're trying, you know, you, 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 you have young family or you have uh, an ill relative or something. And, and given the nature of the, jo- you, the job you do, you can work partly from home and partly from a central office. You don't have to be in four days a week. In fact, you're more productive if you work mostly from home, like three days a week from home, two days a week in the office. But you, you're not allowed to. You've got to, you're, it, it, rather than just sit there and let it affect you, You've got to communicate that to your line manager. You've got to be able to say, listen, Fred, Janet, whoever they are, and look at, I, 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 given the circumstance I'm in at the moment, where I live, I love living in the community I live in. It's an hour away from Dublin. I, I, really, it's a, a pain in the backside. Plus, I have a very young family, I have three kids under eight, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to, you have to take responsibility as well to look after yourself not to work excessively long hours, to work flexibly, but you have to communicate that you have to develop a good psychological contract with your boss. That's what, what's important. The boss has to be open to it, and you have to be open to feeling free that you can discuss things that are troubling you. Otherwise, nothing will change. You'll get burned out, or you will leave because you don't like working for this employer because they're demanding you be in four or five days a week. And I assume if, if that works out, you have to deliver the productivity, meet the targets that you have mutually Absolutely. agreed in order to, to, to foster that trust. You know, it's funny because employers don't quite understand. The more they give you autonomy, trust you, value you, recognize you when you do a good job, manage you by praise and reward rather than fault finding, the more they do that, the more you're going to give back. Mm. That's just a common, normal thing. Human nature. If people, yeah. If you have, if you, yeah, it's nor, normal human na- na- nature, Vincent. I mean, if, I, if I've had in my career great bosses, I've had lousy ones as well, but I've had great bosses who've said, Kerry, I, I don't care how, where, you, where you do your job, when you do your job, just get it done, you know, and, and that's fine. And, the, and they've made me feel, and then I go over the top because I really want to pay them off for what they've done for me, which is give me the autonomy and control over my work that makes me feel happy and job satisfied. Yeah. The Finally, Kerry, the, the, the stats, you know, are all going one way at the moment, that this is an increasing and accelerating problem for all the reasons you outlined earlier in our conversation. Um, are you broadly optimistic about the future that, that companies and employees will come to some sort of equilibrium on this and that, you know, that the, the, the issue will begin to... Uh, be mitigated better than it is now? 
Yeah, I'm very positive about it. I can see from my national forum the kind of work people are doing, and they're really making it more strategic and everything else. You know what I'm more worried about? I'm more worried about what you have, we have in the north of England here, and you have in Ireland, the SMEs, the small and medium-sized enterprises. They need help. They don't have big HR departments, occupational health, and they do need help. And I think we need to do something. Governments need to do something about that. Uh, need to find a way of providing them with support in these difficult times because they, you know, they don't have the infrastructure that the big boys have uh, and the big public sector bodies have. So the SMEs I'm worried about and need support. And I think it's the main, it's the big companies and government have to help them. Big companies helping their supply chain. But I'm very positive because, you know, we have a different breed of HR director now. We have a different breed of, of uh, chief medical officers and people who run occupational health. They are really au fait with this. They understand this. They understand the damage this is doing to people, to the productivity of the company, to the bottom line of the company. That's the good news. Let's help the SMEs because they really need our support and we have to find a way to do it. We haven't as yet done that. And we need to do that because the SMEs in, in Ireland, in the UK, employ more people in the private sector than the big companies do. Yeah. Well, on that relatively positive note and on that challenge, I suppose, that you've put out there, uh, we'll leave it there. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Sir Kerry Cooper. You too, Vincent. Sir Kerry Cooper, Professor of Organisational Psychology and Health at the University of Manchester Business School. Up next, we ask what the legal frameworks are when it comes to mental health in the workplace. Stay tuned. Workplace Wellbeing with Vincent Wall. Brought to you by Leia Healthcare. Download the full Workplace Wellbeing Index now on leahhealthcare.ie. So what about the obligations of employers when it comes to the well-being of their employees? Deirdre Malone is a partner and head of employment law at EY Law Ireland and she joins me now. Deirdre, thanks for coming into us. Thanks for having me, Vincent. We've been talking to uh, Sir Kerry Cooper there, I suppose, about the historical context uh, and the structural issues as to why the the issues of, of mental health and anxiety and stress are becoming more prevalent in, in companies large and small. What's the situation, I suppose, when it, when it comes to employment law? Is that evolving with this greater incidence of, of stress and anxiety in the workplace, both in the traditional workplace and now with remote working? Is, is employment law keeping up with that in terms of, I suppose, the obligations employers have towards their, towards their uh, workforce? Yes, and rapidly, I suppose. First of all, if we, if we start with an employer's obligation to their employees, it, it doesn't matter whether they're inside in the workplace or whether they're at home. The obligation is the same and that obligation is to provide a safe place of work to your employees. And in that, it's not just a physically safe place of work, but also you have an obligation and a duty of care to protect employees' mental health and well-being. So it is evolving at such speed, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to keep up with all of the legislation that the government is introducing in the last couple of years in recognition of the importance of everyone's mental health at work. It's, It's incredible. So... Um, at the moment, we have a number of pieces of legislation and frameworks within which our very regulated employer uh, structure works. Um, so one key area that they're focusing now on is work-life balance directive. Mm. So we've had 
three years to bring that into into being in Ireland and we have just recently in the last couple of weeks seen the bill published around what that looks like and it is very much about um, I suppose the purpose of it originally was to increase gender representation in the workplace but also to ensure that people are availing of parental leave for example and that they're able to meet caring responsibilities that they have for people who are living in their homes for example or for whom they have responsibility and, and all of those things go to helping employees' mental health and well-being. And what does the legal system, or I suppose ultimately the courts, expect? In a, what, what measures uh, does the system or does the law expect an employer to take to ensure that they're doing their best to ensure a company or an employee isn't uh, suffering from anxiety or stress because of what's happening in the workplace or because of the relationship between the workplace and their obligations at home. It's it's Sometimes it's not very visible or tangible. No, exactly. And if an employee decides not to disclose and there's no obligation at all for an employee to disclose if they have or are struggling with any mental health difficulties. So how does an employer manage that and how do you navigate that? And you, I suppose you need to listen to your employees and... Um, you need to lead from the top and your senior leadership team need to be invested in whatever strategies that you're putting in place. And those strategies are the ones that are analysed by the courts in terms of assessing, well, what is the duty of care here? And has this employer met that duty of care when something goes wrong? Mm. And when an employee brings a claim to say, you know, you didn't take care of me and you knew something was wrong. Well, First of all, we look at, well, did we know something was wrong or should we have known that something was wrong? And was it reasonably foreseeable that you would be injured in the sense that your mental health would be injured while you're at work? So those measures that you're asking about, we look at that within that legal framework of, well, has the employer implemented, let's say, a right, the right to disconnect? That mm. was a code of practice that was introduced last year. And it's there's no new legislation. It's just... Kind of protocol, effectively. Exactly, guidelines. exactly. It's guidelines, but it's based on pulling together the Organisation of Working Time Act. Are people working the correct hours? That's a great starting point in making sure that somebody has time to switch off. And to your point earlier around, well, that difference between remote working and working on site. Um, when you remove a commute, for example, people who are working remotely tend to work longer hours. They don't have those water cooler moments where they're taking breaks. And how as an employer can you ensure that your people are taking appropriate breaks all of that goes to the mental health and well-being of people. So all of those different initiatives when pulled together, if you use the regulatory framework rather than um, rail against it, um, those are the employers who are most successful in terms of defending any claims if they do end up in the court. But I mean, in reality, the expectation of employees today is that they will be mm. met with a very high standard of care for their personal well-being and employees will walk if those initiatives aren't there to take care of them. It's not just about financial reward anymore. And that's certainly what I hear from the HR practitioners I'm working with where they're saying, oh, Deirdre, how do we do this? You know, how do we get people to stay? What are other employers doing? Everyone is very anxious to know what other employers are actually um, putting in place in terms of benefits and rewards in order to look after their people and therefore increase productivity and help to retain that talent that they've worked so hard to get. 
What are you seeing on the ground? I mean, EY itself is a large organisation yes, and yeah. uh, I suppose somewhere there may be some stressed employees. Um, <laughs> but what are you seeing b- both in terms of what you're trying to do yourselves, the kind of feedback you're getting from your own colleagues uh, and what are you seeing in client companies in terms of, of, of the measures employee employers particularly are taking to, to, to try to address this, I suppose, this, this ubiquitous growth in, in, in stress and, and, and anxiety and mental health related issues. And are, are employers sharing that information? Well, they, they share it with me, but I suppose I'm a safe place <laughs> to, to share that stuff. But no, they, they are very much so. I mean, they're sharing it with their employees because they're very proud of what they do. Like in EY, we are very proud of what we do for our people. We have so many initiatives. We could do a whole programme just on it. You know, it, it is it is excellent. And things that you wouldn't anticipate to be really utilised by employees are. So um, by way of example, we've access to an online GP service and we have a lot of talent from outside of Ireland that come to Ireland for whatever experience. And we have a lot of, say, graduates who move from home to the big city to come and, you know, start their professional career. And those individuals find it very difficult to get registered with a GP. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And we have access to online one-to-one consultations with the GP. You have your prescription service. We have free gym membership. We have um, mindfulness sessions that are both in person and remote so that we're open to everybody and nobody is left behind in terms of our initiatives. Um, but there's there's so many different elements that when they're brought together, they really make a uh, an exceptional employee experience, which is which is what we live for, and that is our mission. And would you be pretty confident that you know most large professional services firms and most large organisations, whether they be manufacturing or service organisations, are going down this road in terms of that level of support? Every single organisation that we work with, um, and who I'm advising in terms of their employment law needs, um, has all of these initiatives in one guise or another. I think the fundamental one that people have in place is an employee assistance program, yeah. and, to and give, of course, Leia Healthcare provides yes, a um, lot of work there or help there. And, w- and we have it too uh, for for our EY employees, and it's excellent. I think the the feedback that we get from it is very much that it's confidential. It's twenty four seven. And the thing that has been communicated by all clients I'm working with is that people didn't realise that it's for more than just workplace stress, that it's like everything, whether it's like my child won't sleep at night or I'm having financial difficulties. All of those things, that service is there and it's um, it was underused say five or ten years ago and it was something that was put in place as a sort of a defence mechanism to personal injury actions whereas now it's like a fundamental ask of employees where they're saying you know I want to have this I want to have that service available to me. You know if if, if all of this doesn't work if if it turns out that an employee for whatever reason the stress anxiety mental health issues that they're suffering regardless of the level of support that's there uh, regardless of how much communication is going on and this will happen at times just you know a huge level of absenteeism mm. is happening do the procedures to guide that person out of the workplace because the level of absenteeism is just not uh, supportable uh, is that the same as somebody with a with a physical injury or a i suppose a more traditional medical problem to an extent it is what you're talking about is where somebody is managed out for capacity reasons yeah. there's no foreseeable 
date in the short to medium term for that individual to be able to return. So it doesn't matter whether it's physical or mental health. Um, I would certainly say that in the cases that I where I'm working with employees who are being moved on because of mental health as opposed to physical well-being. Unfortunately, diff- yes, yeah. exactly. Those employees, you really need to be extra sensitive with sure. them and and. And they need to be given every opportunity and any decision needs to be based on the most up-to-date medical evidence, both from the employer's side and from the employees. And when you have that level of engagement, you'll often find that the employee is saying, actually, this isn't an environment to which I can return. And that needs to be respected as well. But that process will always need to be managed with extra sensitivity, I would say, too. Thanks a million for that, Deirdre. Deirdre Malone, Partner and Head of Employment Law at EY Law Ireland. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned as in just a moment, Tara Daly of MSS Ireland will talk to me about what she has seen and heard on the ground when it comes to implementing mental health policies. Workplace Wellbeing with Vincent Wall. Brought to you by Leia Healthcare. Download the full Workplace Wellbeing Index now on leahhealthcare.ie. You're listening to Workplace Wellbeing with Vincent Wall. We were talking to Sir Kerry Cooper earlier about mental health in the workplace and how awareness of it as an issue has increased. But what are workplaces actually doing on the ground here in Ireland and how are they trying to address this growing issue? Tara Daly is the HR Services Director at MSS Ireland and she joins me now. Tara, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. This is a big issue. We, we see the stats coming from the LEA Healthcare Wellbeing Index about, you know, the 35% of, of people who were, who were surveyed in that index basically say that their anxiety levels have become much more frequent or mental health issues have become much more frequent or are there all the time uh, well up on, on last year even. And we know the reasons for that, COVID, uh, the cost of living crisis, all of that. What are you seeing on the ground from a, from a HR perspective? I think it's certainly becoming more apparent for employers now. Um, so a lot of the mental health issues perhaps are life issues, as you mentioned, for all those other various factors. But I think employers are starting to see it becoming more apparent in the day to day in things such as absenteeism, perhaps, you know, disengagement from staff, a level of maybe strained relationships increased grievances here and there, bullying complaints, those type of issues are starting to kind of become a little bit more commonplace in the workplace. And I think um, employers are starting to, I mean, I think the larger organisations are certainly taking probably more steps around it because they have the resources there to do that. So for the like of large companies, they're putting in place mental health policies, which is probably the first starting point in terms of what is the company's protocol around it and how do we address it. But also then the importance is then of actually following those policies. So for the smaller companies, I think there is, um, they are certainly wanting to do more for staff, wanting to support their staff. But I think there's a lot to be done in terms of actually educating their teams and their managers on the ground. So whilst we're definitely seeing more of a move towards the the stigma around mental health waning a bit, I think we need to now educate our managers so that when people do come forward with their mental health concerns, those managers are equipped to actually know what to do and how to deal with it, what to say, what not to say. Because I think that can be a very daunting experience for everybody involved, for the person who's suffering and for the people who they communicate with who want to say the best thing, want to do the right thing, but perhaps don't have the skills or the ed- or the, the knowledge there to know what to do. So I think one of the things that which I think is a really positive thing is that you can do now is you can train people to become mental health first aiders. So I had a company recently who've 
took this initiative um, where a number of staff on the ground are now going to be trained as mental health first aiders so that if and when people come to them, first of all, they know there are people there who they can approach um, because that's communicated across the company. And also then if they come to them, these people know and have an approach as to how they might deal with and how to support those particular people, which is, I think, a really positive step. Um, so it's those type of initiatives that I think can help organisations to start to deal with it. Building awareness is crucial. I mean, smaller companies, whilst they may not have the resources, they can still do take steps to try to address mental health um, and building awareness is the first one. So, you know, letting everybody know it's okay to actually speak up about these things, then educating the teams to make sure that they have the skills to actually deal with it. And then there's a variety of, there's a lot, there's external companies that you can use who provide wellness initiatives. So, you know, whether that be mindfulness sessions um, or again, some sort of informational sessions for staff in terms of how to tackle financial issues and all these type of things that we know are at the forefront of people's worries at the moment. There's other things such as, um, say, apps that people can use. So some employers that I've come across are um, paying for apps for employees to download where they can do mindfulness sessions as and when they want on their phones, which is a really positive initiative as well. Um, so there's lots of things for employers to think about and that they can be doing, um, some more costly than others, but not all of them. A lot of them are just, it's, it's a case of letting the employees know that you care. You know, I think at the end of the day, empathy is at the heart of it, you know, showing people that you actually... Are yeah, I'm very interested in that idea, that concept of, of the mental health first aiders. Yeah. From your experience, is, is this a growing phenomenon? Are those people perhaps at all levels of the company? They may be on the shop floor or the factory floor as much as middle management. And are they trained, one, I suppose, that, that the, the person who might be talking to them has full trust in them to, you know, not to go beyond where they have mutually agreed or are they also trained to look out for signals in people that may be suffering from distress that they may not even be conscious of themselves? Yeah, I think it has to be both. You know, we have to, they would certainly be told what are the general signs that you'd be looking for. So certainly if somebody starts to disengage in their work or um, appears to be raising issues that they wouldn't otherwise have done or struggling with the workload that they previously had actually been able to do, no problem. And those are different signals that maybe they could look out for. So I think it's a combination of both. There certainly are all levels across the organisation. I would encourage, and I have seen it being managers, from managers all the way to, to staff on the floor. And I think it needs to be that kind of across the organisation because, you know, if it's not from the top down, then I don't think it really works. You need to have everybody fully aware of what we're um, trying to achieve and they do need to be educated in terms of how to spot the signs so you know maybe just ha pulling something aside for a little conversation is everything okay anything mm. you know the, the matter and then also knowing what to do when they do approach them themselves This is much tougher for smaller businesses and, and the majority of, of Irish businesses as we know are, 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 are have fewer than 10 employees some even much fewer than that it's it's much more difficult because one they don't have the the structures they don't have the different departments the HR departments uh, necessarily to keep an eye on this and to audit it um, they 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 don't have the profit margins uh, sometimes they they and they don't have the time or space to to even think about how their employees are doing and in some cases the actual problem may be the owner or or manager themselves unbeknownst to them. It, it's a difficult one, isn't it? And, and have you any advice for 
for for SMEs in that respect? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely it is a challenge when you don't have the resources there to put in place, you know, expensive, costly resor- um systems or whatever to look after it but I think at the end of the day it comes down to caring about the individuals um, as people people want to know that they matter at the end of the day so it's a, it's a case of letting the employees know that you care having empathy towards them if and when they come forward with these issues and potentially the, I mean there's external HR companies so if you are the only the owner and you're a small company people would use HR consultancy firms, for example, to have an external person to go to. So if you have a grievance, you can go externally to that company to handle that grievance because obviously you may run out of individuals within the company. And if the issue is actually with the senior manager themselves, then they may need an external resource there to actually go to Mm. somebody to approach them. So it's, it's good to have those grievance processes in place that they know what to do if they are struggling at work and if they need to go who who they can go to and that that might be an independent person who could look at it for them. By and large, do you think the situation in Ireland is improving in terms of awareness generally by both employers and employees that this is a growing issue? Or are you seeing, you know, in some instances or perhaps many instances, a pushback by employers? One, because they may be under pressure and they just don't want to have the time or the inclination to deal with this. Or secondly, because they may feel that a lot of their, that, that employees who, who are exhibiting or talking about mental health issues or stress or anxiety, maybe in their view, a bit cosseted, a bit cotton wool. And, and we know that frequently it happens to younger employees Um and an employer may think of it, oh, you know, just get on with it and toughen up. I did. <laughs> no, I think we've moved away from that to- that way of thinking. I think the stigma is certainly waning there. Um, and people are now, I'm seeing, certain, we're seeing more empathy than the level of judgment that maybe would have been there in the past or the kind of brushing aside of the issues as trivial um, you know, get on with the work. It's not, I don't see that as much as it would have been in the past. Now I th- I see that employers are genuinely interested, to want to know how they can support staff. Um, and for many, they just are not familiar with, you know, what's the best way to do it. Um, but I, I definitely am seeing a level of care towards the employees and an empathy because I think everybody has dealt with it in some way in their lives, some sort of mental health, whether it be a loved one or themselves. So I think people are now much more open to discussing it and exploring the avenues of trying to support people. I put the question to Sir Kerry Cooper earlier in in our podcast. Is he broadly optimistic? Because we see the stats, Tara, both from the Lay Healthcare Wellbeing Index and and others, obviously, that this is a growing issue um, and and, and is accelerating perhaps because of the the external issues that have, have affected people over the last two or three years. But are you broadly confident that we can get this back under control through empathy, as you say, at all levels in companies, uh, through through uh, uh, greater health and well-being supports, and uh, uh, and generally a, a more positive attitude to to what's happening to people throughout their lives generally? I think we still need to to do a lot around it. I think there needs to be a lot more awareness building in organisations, and and broadly speaking, people need to realise the the seriousness of the issue that is there and the reality of the fact that it is growing. And have the public health authorities a, a, a greater responsibility there to, 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 I suppose, to broadcast that awareness, to make people more aware of that? You know, literally every citizen to say this this is a growing issue. 
you know, talk to people about it, come and talk to your local doctor or whatever about it. Is there a, a national responsibility there as well? I think so. I think there's, you know, we need to be seeing it at every corner that this is, you know, we're tackling it. This is where you go. This is what you can do if you're struggling. And I don't think that's probably as widespread as it is at the, at the moment. I know there was, there is a new national framework around mental health um, that I think Mental Health Ireland are introducing and so that's a positive initiative for employers and employees in helping to deal with mental health issues and more those type of initiatives are going to go a long way so useful practical guidelines for employers in terms of how to deal with mental health within their organisations I think that's starting to happen and I think more of that is definitely needed and, and should continue to be introduced. Okay, Tara Daly, HR Services Director at MSS Ireland. Thanks for joining us. And my thanks to all my guests this week on this edition of Workplace Wellbeing. And thank you all for listening for this whole series. You can listen to or download the podcast at newstalk.com and be sure to listen to the other episodes too, all in that same place on newstalk.com. Thank you for listening. Workplace Wellbeing with Vincent Wall. Brought to you by Leia Healthcare. Download the full Workplace Wellbeing Index now on leahhealthcare.ie.